I'm Christina Prudent, and this is Enchanted Inc. Welcome to the show. We've covered a lot of topics so far on this podcast, but to me, it's always super interesting to explore religious ideology. I think largely because depending on the topic, it can go one of two ways. Either there's a ton of highly specific information outlining every little detail of origin, or there are a ton of holes and missing information that you're meant to ignore and just go with it based on faith. Today, we're talking about angels, and it's going to be cool because not only do we have, obviously, the Bible as, you know, source of truth, but we'll also be talking about the book of Enoch, which if you don't know, if you've never heard of it, it's scripture supposedly written by Enoch, the great-great-grandfather of Noah, that was ultimately excluded from the Christian Bible and therefore not considered to be canon. So this is definitely more interesting than what you probably think you know about angels. In terms of our YA fantasy angle, this is the start of what will end up being a little multi-episode series around the Harbinger trilogy by Jennifer Armentrout, starting with book one, Storm and Fury. So let's get into it. Angels are commonly defined as supernatural beings who are messengers of God and act as guides to humans, basically the intermediary between heaven and humanity. They are benevolent, right, fundamentally good, meant to guide, assist, and protect us without truly interfering with our free will. And God created them first, before the universe, and before Adam and Eve. So for that reason, among others, obviously, they are considered superior to mankind. I mean, they have powers, they lack original sin. So yeah, although they also lack free will. So is that really better? It's debatable. But different religions believe in different categories of angel with varying levels of power and descriptions, but They're almost always depicted in art and media as appearing human with feathered wings and halos. Now, in the Bible, we only see them interact with humans a handful of times, but unofficial, non-canonical texts like the Book of Enoch tell a very different story around that, which we'll talk about. But by and large, they are revered and celebrated. We pray to them, we name churches after them, visit their statues. You know, I saw this quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church that says, The whole life of the church benefits from the mysterious and powerful help of the angels. From its beginning until death, human life is surrounded by their watchful care and intercession. So generally speaking, angels are not a very controversial being. But other interpretations, like in the world of YA fantasy or shows and movies like Supernatural, depict angels as cold and borderline callous because they lack the ability to experience human emotion. So in the absence of empathy and nuance, they come off as robotic and scary. They're only concerned with fulfilling their duty, nothing more and nothing less and they will eliminate anything that gets in their way. 
So let's talk about the different types of angels, starting with probably the most notable, the most respected, archangels. Now the total number of archangels depends on your religious affiliation, but the top three that are recognized across faiths are the ones mentioned by name in the Bible and the Quran. Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael. First, Michael. Known as the most powerful archangel and the leader of heaven's army. He's usually depicted in classical art as a warrior in armor carrying a flaming sword. He's said to be the one that went to battle with Lucifer and cast him out of heaven. And in Catholic belief, he's also the one who rescues souls from purgatory and delivers them to heaven. So yeah, as I just mentioned... More often than not, Michael is depicted with a glowing sword. So why is that an important call-out? It's, it's a distinguishing characteristic. Well, at some point during my Catholic school upbringing, I was told that that sword was Michael's source of strength and heaven's mightiest weapon. That it was a literal sword that he used, as real as the Ark of the Covenant or the Holy Grail. But there are some other versions of the myth of the Sword of St. Michael. It's also the name for the imaginary line that connects seven churches and monasteries across Europe, from Ireland to Israel, all named after St. Michael because of reported apparitions of him being spotted there throughout history. The interesting thing about that is, in the Book of Enoch, Michael is said to be the protector of seven mountains and the tree of life, which was taken from the Garden of Eden and placed on one of those mountains. So even though it's not included in the Torah or the Bible, that parallel still made its way into the legend. And then, of course, in the show Supernatural, the sword of Michael is not a physical weapon or a place. It's a person right? Or a vessel that Michael is able to possess without burning through the body because it can't handle his grace or his sheer amount of power. Next up, we have the angel Gabriel, the voice of God responsible for announcing God's will to mankind. We, of course, know him as the angel who appeared to the Virgin Mary to announce the birth of Jesus, but he's also mentioned in the Quran as the angel who appears to various prophets, including the prophet Muhammad. Now, the interesting legend behind Gabriel is that of his horn. In the book of Revelations, when Gabriel blows his horn, or trumpet, it will signal the resurrection of the dead during the apocalypse. I've seen, although I can't remember where, I feel like it was in a video game or something, but I've seen legends of Gabriel's horn as an actual relic that if you find it and blow it, has the power to wake the dead. That's going to bother me until I figure out where I got that from. But anyway, it of course comes up in Supernatural, where Gabriel's horn is the name of a sigil, that will draw any angels in the area to it once it's activated. The last archangel I'm going to cover is Raphael. And I'll admit that I really didn't know anything about him at all until I started researching for this episode. He's just not mentioned as much in the sacred texts. But 
he's the angel of healing sent by God, as in that he would come to earth and heal ailments specifically on God's request. You pray for healing, God sends him. Raphael is known for both physical healing, such as curing Tobit of blindness, as well as spiritual healing for saving his son Tobias's wife Sarah from demonic possession. Both stories described in the Book of Tobit, which is recognized in the Catholic Bible, but not in the Jewish Torah. There's not really much else to say about him besides the fact that he was the one to heal the earth and cleanse it after the curse of the fallen. That feels like a good stopping point, so let's take a break, and when we come back, we have one more very important angel that I haven't mentioned. Okay, so right before the break, we mentioned Raphael cleansing the earth after the fallen, which brings me to the most famous named angel in history, Lucifer, the morning star, the light bringer, named so because he was bright and beautiful until he became so prideful that he became jealous of God and wanted that same level of worship and glory for himself. Sidebar, apparently Lucifer's pride, with a capital P, represents the beginning of sin in the universe. So how can they say that angels have no free will when Lucifer chose to rebel? Anyway, Lucifer was banished from heaven into hell, and that is when he became known as Satan. And we know the rest. The next time we see him, he is a serpent in the Garden of Eden, and his main mission is to tempt humans into sin and damnation by any means necessary with the help of the fallen, or the other angels that chose to rebel alongside him. Of course, the Book of Enoch has a very different origin story, saying that the fallen were angels tasked with protecting earth and mankind, but they fell victim to temptation and sin, including the very egregious sin of creating children with humans, called Nephilim. So God banished them too, and they became demons. So now that we've covered archangels, the ultimate good, and Lucifer, the ultimate bad, I feel like we finally have enough background to get into the Harbinger series by Jennifer Armentrout and how it handles angel lore, angelology. And I'm going to try my best to get through this with no major spoilers, because for me, the plot twists were honestly the best part, and I don't want to ruin that. The Harbinger Trilogy beginning with book one, Storm and Fury, follows 18-year-old Trinity Marrow, who's slowly going blind, but can see and communicate with spirits. She lives in an isolated, protected compound with a race of gargoyles called Wardens, who protect mankind from demons. Everything she knows gets turned upside down when wardens from another clan arrive to ask for reinforcements to help fight an unknown something that is killing both demons and wardens in their territory. And honestly, it's great. It has a little bit of everything, action, suspense, love. I was so pleasantly surprised by how much I actually enjoyed it. Which, by the way, shout out to my friend Sammy for putting me on. But yeah, the series, at least at the beginning, revolves around the wardens and demons. 
And where there's demons, there's also angels, right? Because as we just learned, it was the fallen angels who ultimately became demons. So they ended up playing a huge part in all this. And real quick, in the series, the fallen are all stripped of their wings and their grace when they get to Earth, except for Lucifer. This becomes important around Book 3. So, since I've mentioned it a few times, what is grace? An angel's grace is their life force. It's the source of their power and what separates them from any other creature. Nephilim, the hybrid children born from a mortal human and an angel, also have grace, but obviously not quite as strong. They can call upon it when they need it, but it's not like visibly coursing through their veins like full angels. It's, of course, extremely powerful, right? And so as a result, one of the only weapons that can kill an angel is an angel blade. We see those come up in pretty much any and every angel fight scene in Supernatural, but in the Harbinger series, only archangels carry them. And honestly, I feel like the author borrows a lot from Supernatural. Although to be fair, it's kind of hard not to since they're pretty thorough and pretty accurate with their angel lore, but the cool thing is that she acknowledges it. Supernatural actually exists in-universe, and Trinity and a few of the other characters mention it, they make jokes about it, so it's fun. But yeah, that's, that's it, and honestly, that was tough because all of that information is relevant and very important to different parts of the series, but I can't really say how or when without spoiling something. So just read the books. All in all, I give Storm and Fury uh, an 8 out of 10, would definitely recommend, but two points off for cringy dialogue. So before we go, we talked about at the beginning of the episode how there are several different types of angels described throughout various religious texts. I won't go over all of them, but there are a few that I think are worth an honorable mention. First up, cherubim, the plump little babies with tiny wings like Cupid that we see on Valentine's Day cards. That's, of course, not how they're described in the Bible. It's simply the depiction of them that emerged during the early Renaissance, like most of our classical religious artwork. In actuality, they're important and powerful. They're the heavenly record keepers that hold the knowledge of God. Not to be confused with Metatron, who is God's scribe. The cherubim seem to be, apparently, more like heaven's librarians. But fun fact, Metatron, who of course appears in Supernatural, uh, is apparently, according to Kabbalah, according to Jewish mythology, is Enoch. He is, when Enoch was ascended into heaven, he became an angel, was renamed Metatron, and became the scribe of God. So the more you know, that's your trivia fact of the episode. Next, we have the seraphim, the angels closest to God. They each have six wings, four of which they use to cover their bodies in the name of modesty, and the other two they use to fly. They spend all day glorifying and exalting God by endlessly chanting, Holy, 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 and they're the ones most often depicted in medieval art. 
the last kind of angel I'll mention today are the thrones. They are fascinating, to say the least. It's, it's kind of become a meme, but they are definitely the reason angels started all of their human interactions with Be Not Afraid. Thrones are described as glowing, fiery wheels covered with eyes. But when they interact with humans, they appear to us in human form so they don't blow our puny little minds and or burn our eyes out. They are responsible for carrying the throne of God, hence the name, and maintaining the cosmic harmony, whatever that means. And that's it. That is angels. If you want to learn more about heavenly beings, or you just want to chat, you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Enchanting Podcast. Or head over to our home on the web, EnchantedingPodcast.com, to drop me an email. And if you like the show and you want to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks, guys. See you next time. <laughs>